Welcome to What's Left, the weekly political discussion challenging the mainstream left. I'm Eduardo Barco, a teacher in socialist Andy Lipson and uh, socialist and community organizer Kenny Cepeda. Uh, today, we are joined by a panel of socialists um, from around the world to be able uh, to hold this discussion so that we can have finally our ideas and shared I, um, just our shared ideas around uh, what we make of the the pandemia as well as uh, the recent events that, that we've been discussing in this online, um, this ongoing saga that we've been discussing on reopening and everything in between. Today we are joined by Adam from Workers League based in Brisbane, Australia. Hi, hello. Uh, Tom from New York, currently in Germany and active in the free left, Frei Linke. Hi. Uh, David Fletcher from Left, uh, Left Lockdown Skeptics in the UK. Hi there. AJ Johnston, revolutionary socialist and teacher in, in San Francisco. And of course, our lovely uh, two co-hosts, Kenny Cepeda and uh, Andy Luson. Yeah. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us, folks. Glad to be here. Yeah, thank you. Likewise. Um, and just to say, um, the this reason that we wanted to put this together was because really it's been the socialist response to COVID and and what's been going on with the lockdowns has been extremely disappointing. Um, and it's been really, I've been very grateful to meet fellow socialists from around the world, really, who've been able to share uh, their thoughts on this. And we thought would be a good idea, idea for people to hear that there are socialists who oppose what's going on and just to see where they're coming from. Yeah, and um, we've been wanting to do this for a while and um, we're very just excited to have you all. This is uh, this time around for an isolating time politically. <laughs> so let's start off with, um, so why don't, you tell us a little bit about your, yourself uh, personally that might help us both know a little of who you are and um, what made you decide to be a socialist. Um, describe one core element of socialism that uh, really resonates with you. And we'll start off with um, Tom. Yeah, uh, so I'm Tom, I'm a English teacher originally from New York, but I've lived in a few places, the UK, China, and now Germany. Uh, why I became uh, socialist. Uh, I came from a, a family uh, with long connections to the Irish Republican movement. I uh, was raised on rebel songs, uh, was exposed to that early. Um, also was exposed early to liberation theology, and Catholic social teaching that pushed me towards socialism. And then in high school, I discovered Marx um, and was basically convinced that the Marxist analysis is correct. Uh, and with some variation and a lot of learning. Uh, I've been convinced of that since. Um, what is core to me about socialism, especially now, um, is the conviction that the masses have the right and the capacity to be the masters of their own existence, that they don't need kings or bosses or unelected public health technocrats to tell them how to live. Um, you know, and I, I believe that the masses can be successful, will defeat uh, this, this current ruling class assault. I think Mao said, uh, make trouble again, 
fail again, make trouble, fail again. That's the logic of the imperialist and the reactionaries until they're doomed. <laughs> fight, fail, fight again, fail again, fight. That's the logic of the people until their victory. Uh, I believe this is true. This is why I became involved in the Freilinke here in Germany, which is an attempt to bring together a broad strata of any leftist opposed to lockdown measures. Uh, I believe other socialists will come to us sooner or later. Um, and I believe the masses can win. So how about, uh, David, how about you? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm David Fletcher. I was born in the south of England and uh, I had, I didn't have a very political childhood, I guess, unlike uh, Tom. Um, but really it was when I went to university and discovered the Socialist Student Society there that I was kind of first exposed really to socialist ideas. And um, at that point, I've been working part time for several years in retail in uh, fast food and you know the basic socialist ideas of you know workers owning the means of production the if you like the almost the redundancy of the capitalist class who don't play any role in the production process uh, i think really resonated with me you know when i worked at mcdonald's the the kitchen it was like a production line you know it was all about control and very strict timings and so, you know, when I was reading uh, Marx's Capital for the first time, to be honest, I, I didn't really understand half of it. But the bits that I did understand did resonate with me because it, it, it was so clear where, you know, the role that workers' exploitation plays in uh, the, the extraction of value and, and profits. So I think for me, um, you know, the fundamental point of socialism is is workers' control. It's not about, um, you know, being told what to do by the capitalist class. It's not about, um, it's about people having control over their own workplace and ultimately scaling that up to their own, you know, society as a whole. Um, through the Socialist Student Society, which was essentially a front, to be honest, for the uh, the Socialist Party of England and Wales, which is part of the Committee for Workers International. Uh, so I joined them. I was quite active in with that party for a while. Was involved in a factional fight with people like Bruce Wallace. Um, and then eventually we kind of formed our own grouping. Uh, then fast forward to uh, 2015, when Jeremy Corbyn became the leader of the Labour Party and we kind of got stuck in the Labour Party, and after Kistama was elected leader, uh, kind of stopped getting involved in the Labour Party and was re really, you know, started to set up her left lockdown sceptics, which I'm sure we'll talk about more later. Um, I'm AJ um, in San Francisco. I'm a teacher, high school teacher, and revolutionary socialist here. I think for me, when I was um, when I was growing up, there were a few events that sort of led me to kind of try to figure out what was going on with the world. Um, abortion rights kind of came under attack in a way for the first time since Roe versus Wade um, in a serious way. I was, the first protest I ever went to was when I was uh, like 12 or 13 in Washington, DC to defend Roe versus Wade. 
um, the uprising after uh, Rodney King was beaten by police in LA and the verdict of um, in that case. And then I also think the first Gulf War, I just had a lot of questions about racism, about sexism, about the way the world worked, um, about the cycles of poverty in my own family. And I found that I read the Communist Manifesto and then when I was um, when I went to college, I found a group that was actually organizing around those ideas. I remember reading it and thinking it was the explanatory power of Marxism. It was that this made sense of the world for me. And then I found a group of people that were using these ideas to try to change the world. And I was there. That was it for me. Um, I was I was all in. <laughs> I was with that group on the ISO for uh, uh, years, many, many years. Um, and left that group, but did not leave my revolutionary socialist politics. Um, I think for me, that Marx and materialism explains the world. And for me, revolution follows from there. There's no sort of half measure way to sort of vote a change into power or rely on somebody else to, to do it for us. Um, I think today of my, what continues pushing me to organize and be curious about the world is my anger, my real anger, anger and deep sadness about this world, but also um, my, my, my love and my belief that we are many and they are few, that every single person in this world um, is, are my people, all the people in the working class are my people. And um, you know, any other idea that tries to say that all the working class is not my people, despite your race, your gender, your nation, your language, your ethnicity, any other idea other than that um, is, uh, is, is wrong, is anti-revolutionary and takes us away from the future that, that I hope we could see. Uh, yeah, thank, okay. Uh, thank you. Uh, yeah, my name's Adam Baker. Uh, I'm uh, from the Workers' League, uh, where uh, I, I guess, started to, to be uh, in, out in socialism about 25 years ago uh, when there was a uh, conservative uh, uh, capitalist government elected at that time. And uh, I just thought the best thing to do to fight that was to, be, was to become a socialist. So I joined a socialist organization at that time and uh, stuck with it for for some years, but uh, of course, the more you get into uh, socialism, the more you realize that it's not just uh, the mainstream parties, it's, uh, it's the whole system and uh, the whole system of capitalism. And so you study more about history and about, uh, uh, about the Marxist critique of, uh, of capitalism. And uh, yeah, it, it, it just makes sense, I suppose. Some of us are kind of an inherent socialist, I suppose. <laughs> And uh, I, I guess I was one of those, um, but um, I mean, uh, one one element of, of socialism that resonates with me is is that uh, I I struggle with the idea that uh, well, like the workers' control idea that um, that 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 managers who may or may not have um, you know the you know better knowledge uh, than you have uh, have power of you. Uh, and can uh, boss you around and um, and uh, give you give you orders and give you directions and uh, yeah I um, and and of course they use that for for their ends uh, not for what what should be done uh, in in the fairest way of course uh, so I think socialism can uh, 
uh, can can put an end to that. Uh, and yeah, I mean, with with the uh, with the lockdowns uh, and and socialism, I think uh, you know the working class has not really yet begun to fight. Um, it's uh, I see so many examples. Uh, I mean, there's there's a start of a fight back there for sure, uh, but um, but really that yeah that the the, uh, the 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 capitalists uh, they're they're banking so far on. Uh, that there, that there is not a fight back, and there isn't a huge one yet. Um, but uh, but there's huge potential for for a uh, a, a, a fight back. Because when and when the working class enters that fight, uh, yeah, it's there's, there's a there's a big possibility of winning. Uh, you, you don't always win, of course, but uh, there's there's a big possibility of winning because uh, uh, history history is just uh, uh, it might be a cliche to say it, but history is history is on our side and. Uh, I, I think Marxism and and uh, and socialist theory helps with that. So, uh, uh, so everyone here is an uh, anti-lockdown socialist or, or an anti-COVID repression is uh, repression. Um, the viewpoint is rare among socialists, especially in the U.S. How did you come to this perspective that focuses on the state implementation of repression rather than the spread of a deadly virus? Um, who wants to answer that first? Oh, goodness. I think when, when schools were first closed and everything was locked down, um, for me at first, the focus um, was on this is going to be, this is an absolute disaster for the working class and for working people. And my focus at first was on, look, if you tell people they have to stay home, then we need to be demanding X, Y, and Z, like end of rents, like <laughs> direct de deliveries of food for free. Like, my focus was sort of on how are people going to survive um, if this is what you are telling people that they need to do. But I think, you know, by summer, that was whatever that was, March. By summertime, um, my experience of having gone through the spring in so-called distance learning with my students and seeing the toll that it was taking on families and students and also seeing how immediately anti-solidarity and alienating it was for the teachers, for us, the way we started to sort of pull apart and um, divide kind of instantly um, started to raise some questions for me. And by summer when Breonna Taylor and George, George Floyd were both murdered and the protests that erupted around that, when I watched people so quickly accept curfews um, before things even sort of broke out like in their cities, like here in the Bay Area, um, when I watched the fact that all these people went out and there was no spike in like in cases and bodies dropping everywhere because people had been out protesting when that didn't happen it really started to raise some questions for me um, about what was really going on and what was the motivation behind this very tight level of control of our movement and our association with each other and that's where the question of just who's benefiting from this started to um, really be the thing that I was focusing on. Um, I started doing my own, you know, division of the number of cases versus number of dead in the San Francisco Chronicle every week. And like, it's like, what is going on? Like, this is not, <laughs> you know, uh, so I'll, I'll just stop there. I think it was once I started seeing, um, reality that I was experiencing at a very small level along with these bigger stories not matching up with the picture I was seeing. I had to shift my focus. Uh, David? Yeah, so I guess uh, for me, 
uh, initially I supported uh, the lockdown policy. Um, you know, I was under the impression that there was this kind of deadly virus that was going to come. Uh, one, two, three percent of people infected were going to die. Uh, so obviously, with that mindset, I thought, well, you know, these measures are justified. People can work from home. Um, those who can't work from home can. That there are measures that can be put in place. Um, the government really stepped up in terms of funding, like with the furlough scheme, where uh, essentially they're paying 80% of people's wages. Um, so I thought, okay, you know, maybe this is this will be okay for a bit. Uh, and then, like AJ was saying, you know, it got to the summer uh, when cases were low, and people were warning, oh no, there's going to be another spike if people go out. But that never happened. I thought, oh, hang on, what's what's going on here? And, uh, you know, I started to look into it more. I was reading literature about the lockdowns. So there was there were scientific papers coming out showing that actually lockdowns, when reviewed across the world, didn't have any effect. You know, they didn't impact COVID mortality when, when looked at across the, uh, you know, various countries around the world. Um, you know, why did... Um, and then I was looking around, seeing more unemployment. Uh, I could see the toll it was taking on my own children, um, you know, just on myself, you know, trying to work full time. I've got three kids at home. And I thought, well, this, this isn't kind of working out, is it? And then I was hearing about mental health issues um, with, with people uh, who work in the council, local council, you know, having to deal with suicides. And I thought, you know, this, this, um, this this really isn't justified you know the average age of a covid death was 80 i think it was 82 at the time i thought well this is clearly an end of life disease it's not really a deadly pandemic and i think the way this has been framed or the way it was framed initially was completely wrong and then you start thinking well why are they doing this and um well i guess i guess we can talk more about that later but um you know it's not for our benefit that's that's for sure um, and Adam. Well, I, I think I, I can admit that I, I was confused for probably the first few weeks um, over the, uh, um, say, say March and at, at the start of April. I, I, I admit I was confused about what was happening. Um, but uh, the, the change that came from me when uh, our union uh, officials uh, very early on in April um, cancelled Labor Day. Uh, now, um, Labor Day, the Labor Day march that we have, local one we have here, uh, it's been going uh, for something like 150 years. Um, and so as, as the, the moment the union officials and the union bureaucracy cancelled Labor Day, um, that was the moment which made me think, hang on a sec, something's not right here. Uh, and, uh, um, and, then, and then so reading more about it uh, and then, then came the realisation, well, the union bureaucracy uh, and is helping the government uh, to keep workers apart so they can't uh, resist this. Uh, they can't organise uh, against it. Um, it that's, that's, uh, <laughs> that seems to be the, uh, the, 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 the driving factor. Um, and then, of course, later, yeah, reading um, more, more about it um, uh, and then trying to marry that up with with a marxist an analysis uh where 
you know, at, at what time can we say that the, the, the bourgeois state or the capitalist state is primarily concerned with uh, health care of the working class and the poor? Uh, that's, uh, you know, given the fact that uh, we've had arguably 40 years, 40 years of, 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 of Western uh, capitalist governments reducing funding drastically for health care, uh, just ripping funds out of out of uh, healthcare and education and all kinds of services, but especially healthcare. Uh, so it it cannot it cannot possibly be that uh, the bourgeois state today uh, is concerned about healthcare. Um, and and of course the yeah the as we probably agree the lockdowns and uh, face masks and even the vaccines uh, are, are probably the worst thing worst thing for for the healthcare of of the working class. Um, and so it's, yeah, from our point of view, it's, it's much more about um, uh, political repression um, and, uh, uh, and, and econ economic motives for, for, the, for the ruling class um, and where they need to keep, keep the working class very severely repressed. Uh, and, and it's easy to do that with, with, a, with, an, ideolo with an ideology um, rather than um, a brute force, or or using the state um, to spread itself out to use brute force, and unfortunately, they've chosen an, a quite effective ideology to do that. Um, but um, as a, as a uh, uh, luckily, there is a fight back against that as uh, a, a minority, but a very important minority uh, fighting back against that. Um, so um, yeah, uh, I think I was um, disposed to be pretty skeptical. Very early on, I think in big part because of Corey Morningstar's work on the Green New Deal um, and the whole NGO complex that I was already aware of before this, um, that the, the ruling class had been already moving into place to implement a really dramatic restructuring of our societies, uh, one that we were not going to have uh, a stake in, um, and that a lot that was being constructed there as a fraudulent response to the, the genuine ecological crisis was shifted immediately into place with you know minor changes of window dressings for this um, fraudulent response to a fraudulent crisis. Um, so I was, I was skeptical there. I'd also um, say Jacob Levitch's longstanding research on the Bill and Melinda Gates organization um, and already had a sense of just how sinister an operation that already was and that he had been long uh, pushing for this public health imperialism, uh, really militarizing public health as a way of plundering third world states and dominating them. Uh, also, Molly Klein's research uh, and kind of uh, exposure of the fake left, of justice Democrats, how these kind of pseudo left wing responses interpose themselves between us and a genuine Marxist analysis of the crisis. Those were really important for me. Um, to, to kind of be, I was skeptical from the beginning. I was not sure if maybe this was a bioweapon or, um, you know, I was open from the, the get-go to um, all sorts of accounts. I, I knew that the mainstream media account was, was clearly contradictory from the very beginning. Um, and then also just personally being uh, in Germany and experiencing um, the particularly the rift between you know, knowing what was going on in other places, because uh, I think one of the ironies of this crisis is that even though we've all been holed up in our rooms um, and in a sense more international, 
than ever before and that you know your your physical location seems less significant i've never found people more parochial more limited in their understanding of what's actually going on in the world um so i had the very surreal experience of being in germany where the lockdown was later than new york was far more milder than new york and started easing up far earlier than new york and i would speak to friends and family and they would say well you guys in germany are doing so well cuz you locked down hard and early um and I said, you know, whatever the explanation for the different experiences we've had of this crisis, that cannot be it. Um, and these glaring contradictions that have been papered over through constantly. I think a lot of people, once you've kind of gone down the black hole of uh, skepticism about these lockdowns, uh, there's so much concrete information of clear skullduggery on the part of, of the media and the ruling class that it can't be explained, you know, to explain that away would require a far more Baroque conspiracy than any of the conspiracy theories that we are charged with having, which is just a conventional class analysis, actually, I think. So each of you, each of us, each of our guests here is from a different or in a different location. Um, can you talk about the scale and character of the resistance to lockdowns in your locale? Um, what has happened that you believe has been significant in terms of that resistance or, or response? And have you played, what, what role uh, have you participated in it in, in any way? So um, we'll start with David. Sure. So, I mean, resistance to lockdown last year was pretty negligible, I would say, because uh, in part mainly because of the complete collapse of the left uh, on this issue. Uh, so resistance to it has been very kind of underground and disparate and uh, a lot of it's been kind of organized in a not very organized way, you know, kind of through uh, telegram groups and getting just trying to spread word of mouth. So, you know, we've kind of seen things like people putting stickers on lampposts. Um, we've had flash mob kind of groups where. Uh, you know, people might uh, get together for like um, like a song and dance in the street, you know, which will eventually get uh, called off by the police. Uh, people even organising maskless shopping trips because people are frightened to go to the shops on their own, not wearing a mask, you know, because that's the there's so much social pressure to kind of participate in this uh, the charade, you know. Um, but starting last summer, there were there was a, a kind of a, a protest in London. There were a series of small protests around London. Although those were kind of because they were small, they were easily written off as kind of oh, a few quacks and conspiracy theorists and David Icke followers and so on. I think what's really changed this year over the last few months is that is that the demonstrations in London uh, unite for freedom. Uh, marches have been in the hundreds of thousands and particularly the one that was uh, recently a couple of weeks ago there were must have been half a million people out on the streets of London and that's not an exaggeration but the thing is it didn't get any uh, coverage whatsoever from the BBC uh, it was basically ignored by the mainstream media and when it was brought up uh you know, it was, oh, it's a few thousand anti-vaxxers, you know, when I, I was there, you know, Oxford Street was just packed end to end. Uh, 
it was it was um you know huge but because there's no major organizations behind it it lacks obviously organization it lacks kind of structure um so it's very it kind of feels almost like an insurgency in a way but it's it's kind of it's not controlled and i think what there really needs to be is some sort of organizing body or some sort of coalition that can unite all these different disparate groups people with very different politics but on this issue of the day fundamentally agree uh i mean my my participation in this my main contribution has been setting up the left lockdown skeptics website and um i guess you could describe me as a reluctant leader so i didn't see anybody on the left in the uk kind of doing this and i thought well i'm gonna have to do it aren't i you know so i kind of rallied people around me who were um thinking along similar lines and we had some chats and then on that basis i was able to draft up the first document that we put on the website which is kind of our analysis of covid fascism so i'd say and and really the website's gone from there so i'd say that's my main contribution to this as well as obviously attending the big london demos adam next well i mean i i can say that uh and not specifically where I live in Australia, but in Melbourne and Victoria, um, arguably had the harshest lockdowns in the world where they, I think they had uh, two, uh, three months lockdown. So basically they had six months of lockdown of, uh, I think they were tier, tier four uh, or, or stage, stage four lockdowns um, where you 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 literally could get arrested for for leaving your house without a reason, uh, and this went on for uh, you know three months at a time. So and six months in in total. So they they were arguably the harshest lockdowns in in the world. Uh, uh, well, in next the country next door in New Zealand as well, they had extremely harsh lockdowns. Uh, you know, I heard um, from uh, some in some instances they had they had police parked at the end of. Uh, at the end of residential streets, um, to you know, checking that people were not coming out of their houses. Uh, I mean, th- and so this was just uh, extreme. Um, uh, where I live uh, in in Australia, in Queensland, it, they they weren't as bad, uh, but um, but certainly the the, the propaganda level, uh, the propaganda barrage of of COVID um, is as as bad as 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 anywhere else, um, but. Despite that, uh, there has been, you know, quite a bit of a an anti-lockdown uh, movement um, throughout last year and um, and continuing continuing this year, uh, which has uh, you know, uh, sporadically uh, organised uh, quite large demonstrations uh, against the lockdowns, uh, and um, in in at least all of the major cities. And and uh, probably the the largest ones came uh, about uh, uh, well at, at the at the time that where the where the the vaccine uh, rollout was was beginning, um, and so that 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 really I think garnered a whole lot more people into these anti lockdown rallies than than were were coming before because I think there's. Um, even even uh, sections of of workers that are that are in favour of lockdowns or, or that are in favour of the face masks, they don't have a problem with them. A large number of them 
don't want to take this experimental vaccine um, and with all of the obvious side effects, including including death, um, and 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 especially not as a mandatory thing. So, so that uh, that really the, the vaccine or the mandatory vaccine sort of uh, element uh, really pumped up the the anti lockdown movement um, to a, to a large extent. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, follow, following on from David, there, there is. Um, there is a bit, a little, a, a bit of a lack of political leadership of that anti-lockdown movement. While they're good uh, organisationally and uh, they can uh, organise these uh, rallies, which are very impressive, uh, there, there is a, a lack of political direction and perspective, um, which, um, uh, if 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 the socialist com- component of of that was large enough, it could could probably exert some influence uh but uh, I, unfortunately that's that's not the case at the moment um but uh but also like like in in the uk uh the the mainstream media the corporate media uh is is almost totally ignoring uh these these anti-lockdown uh demonstrations and and rallies and and pickets almost almost totally uh not 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 totally but but almost totally so uh, you know large large numbers of the working class would not know uh, that that there are large numbers of people, in, in some cases thousands of people, marching in the streets in their cities um, against the lockdowns and the mandatory face masks and the vac- and the mandatory vaccines. Uh, but uh, but anyway, it, it's it's uh, yeah the, the the hope that that can uh, be maintained and 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 gain some more political direction. Um, uh, hopefully, in a pro-working class direction, um, can can come about. Okay, thanks, um, AJ. Tom. I thought it was Tom. Oh gosh, thank you, you Eduardo. Tom. I'm only following your. Yeah, Tom. I'm really coming after you, trying to get you yeah. out. Of this <laughs> Being censored. Uh, <laughs> How do you feel about censorship on what's left? Um, so, in Germany, um, like I said, even though the initial lockdown was very mild uh, and had a lot of popular support, massive consensus. Germany was doing right. It was fitting its national stereotype. Um, I think early on there was more healthy skepticism in German language media uh, that I came across than in English. Lots of telegram groups and websites and and even seemed quite a few prominent doctors, Sutra Bhakti, Wolfgang Vodarg. Um, also early on in Germany, a um, a group called Querdenker, associated, it means lateral thinker in German, uh, associated with a German IT businessman, Michael Ballweg, um, quickly uh, developed a fairly hegemonic role in the protest movement uh, on this quite franchise model. So each city would be Querdenker and then it's postal code. So um, whatever, Querdenker 30 for Berlin. Um, and this quickly established a network. Uh, there's obviously lots of skepticism about how much of this was perhaps controlled opposition, or but also Germany has this quite substantial middle class, um, real independent middle class that was assaulted here uh, through these lockdowns, um, and maybe had a little bit more self confidence um, than than middle classes in places like UK or the US. Um, 
And so this movement was um, dominated often by these Querdenker um, groups. Uh, they started growing, particularly after the summer. Immediately in the media, they were universally defamed as far-right, um, often uh, lots of attempts to tar it as um, neo-Nazi or AFD, which is the, the major right-wing party um, in Germany, even though the AFD wasn't playing a very significant part in them. Um, and I have to say, uh, personally, even I was quite conflicted, so I went to a few of these protests early in the fall, um, and I, I didn't find any of the these far-right people that were supposed to be there, but I also am not that fluent in German. Um, so I would I would go back and I would say, you know, was I just at some far-right rally, you know, had a, a real kind of trepidation and an element in Germany that seems to be fairly unique um, is that Antifa groups have have taken um, as basically honest and legitimate this bourgeois media consensus that all of the rallies are fascist or, you know, the ones who aren't fascist are not cases. And so Antifa often attempts to counterpress and, and hinder, uh, so stop marches, um, directly try to counteract or, or stop um, the anti-lockdown rallies in Germany, uh, which is a really complicated factor. It's really unfortunate. Uh, of course, I think there's probably state actors driving this, but also a lot of people um, who are genuinely confused, who have been taken in by the propaganda, whose analysis cannot really integrate the fact, um, who can't really honestly look at these protests and see the class composition of these protests and the political composition, which is not right wing. Um, that's really clear. Uh, then um, in the after the winter, uh, moving into the spring, uh, this movement's been growing again. There was a, a demo that tried to distance itself from Querdenker a bit, uh, that was quite large in all of the capitals in Germany. And then there was a major demonstration in Kassel uh, with some 20,000 people, uh, which was really phenomenal. Uh, we went and we're pushed off onto a square uh, and we hadn't even gotten a full sense of the size of the uh, the rally. And then um, it uh, moved into a march. Um, and this I had just gone on personally. Um, and as the march formed, we looked back and just saw this sea of people going forward and forward. I had no, not appreciated the scale beforehand. was also struck by, you know, the flags were peace flags, rainbow flags, you know, uh, totally clearly non right wing but ceaselessly in the media still that's the message um and i'm, I'm happy to say that on may day the, the friar linka along with a group called the berliner communarden um and also a group called freedom parade that are uh, sort of german club culture uh, party people but got together for an explicitly left-wing anti-lockdown demonstration and march uh, and the demo started with some 200 people with some fantastic speeches and culminated in a march that got up to 500 people at some point marching through a working class neighborhood of Berlin uh, carrying red flags of the Freilinke um, and, and making clear that the, there is a left that's opposing these lockdowns. Thank you and um, we're going to save the most inspiring for last with the United States. <laughs> Um, we have nothing like that here. <laughs> so, but, and, uh, 
In fact, our May Day um, march in San Francisco was a look back to the glory years of the 1934 general strike, like seemingly absent of any content about the horrible attack that the working class is under right now. Um, I mean, Kenny can probably add on, but I mean, we have nothing at all like that. I can say the only thing that I think is uh, significant have been uh, the moments where, for example, the demonstrations against uh, police murders and the police became, you know, this is something that the weight of it was enough to say, we're going to defy orders to be in our houses, we're going to go out and protest. Um, those were moments where people could see that there are other things that are dangerous in the world and that COVID is not our big, our big dangers boogeyman. I would say, especially here in the Bay Area, after we were sort of re-locked down in November and December, it has been dismal, except for the um, sort of flashpoint around school reopening, um, which, you know, neither of those things were explicitly anti-lockdown, um, but were moments of people sort of questioning the constraints on our movement and association and right to protest and be together and have an education that exists in real life. Yeah, just, um, yeah, just from jumping off what uh, AJ said, um, there's very little going on um, in the Bay Area when it comes to resistance. Um, and in fact, I think that um, that second lockdown kind of cemented this uh, acceptance of the narrative um, because uh, even during the George Floyd protests, um, we, a lot of friends um, would go out protest, stay out, defy the lockdowns, uh, but then they would quarantine for 14 days. Uh, you know, they themselves would submit to that. Um, and so and people I felt were beginning to question stuff um, in the organizing circles that I'm part of here. Uh, we launched a bunch of organizations to uh, do a mutual aid, um, you know, to especially working class people, mainly um, immigrant families that are really in single mothers that are getting, you know, a very shitty deal and so um but again what has happened is that people have fully accepted the narrative and there is no questioning uh, uh the scientific uh expert experts uh the official you know um media and if you do you know i feel like this is where trump came magically was useful for it in the u.s that if you question science, even though it's pseudoscience, it's not even, um, you know, a lot of the facts are really manipulated and, and people, um, again, don't have the confidence to question experts uh, and bring into question their, their, their statistics, their, um, their constant, you know, changing of uh, what COVID does and what, it, you know, how severe it is. Um, Again, the, mere, the the reality is that there's little to no resistance, and I I only find people in remote areas that are, are have similar ideas about this, and so yeah, even now I, I, it's hard to speak about it. Um, at my workplace, there's only one other person that hasn't gotten the vaccine, and that is my brother, <laughs> and you know out of twenty people, and so and in and then we constantly get jokes about being right-wing, just like Tom was saying, uh, fascist and all this stuff. And, and so it's sad is we're not in a, at all at a point where we can organize from that standpoint. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on the proliferation of vaccines and the implementation of vaccine passports? And should we start 
with Adam. I think I think this this it probably if it gets uh, set up and implemented, we're, we're talking uh, we're talking of a situation of uh, a type of vaccine apartheid, uh, where uh, it, it's possibly getting to to a situation where those who uh, uh, well well either I can't get the vaccine for medical reasons such as pregnant uh, women or those with allergies or etc. Or those who refuse to take the the vaccine um, may be excluded from society, or may be excluded from public participation in society. Um, uh, you know, um, it, it may start with um, uh, overseas overseas travel, uh, but could very easily be extended to domestically to public transport to uh, even. Uh, uh, cinemas, uh, theaters, uh, shopping centers. Uh, so, um, you know, you may not be able to go to your shopping center to get uh, groceries, uh, your food, um, if without a, a a vaccine passport. And and so, uh, it, it's we we could be setting up uh, banter stands effect, effectively, or or sheltered uh, communities. Uh, <laughs> Uh, set set apart from society, um, it, it, there is the danger of this. Um, uh, and at the moment, it, well, in, in Australia, there's a lot of uh, check-in apps, which uh, which which for, are for not for the vaccine itself, but for um, tracking and tracing. Um, and and so that could very easily be be could start to be used for. You know, excluding people from public transport or um, events or sport or uh, cultural events uh, and 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 so on and so forth. Um, so um, this this is dangerous. I mean, not to not to speak of the of the the reason uh, that the COVID vax, of course, doesn't pre- doesn't um, prevent uh, infection or transmission of 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 the virus, assuming that the virus exists at, at all. Um, so. It's a question of, you know, how how could it how could it be implemented? But um, but but again, uh, this is a this is a totalitarian uh, measure, and you know, certainly the Workers League we we do label it as as fascism. This is a form of fascism uh, that um, that is being implemented here, um, and uh, you know, it, it may not be led by a Nazi party, uh, perhaps, or and it may even be, be led by by liberal uh, parties of the establishment, uh, but um, yeah, and this is a form of fascism as far as we're concerned, and and this is why it has to be has to be fought. But uh, I think it can be I think it can be fought because uh, I don't think a majority of the people, uh, because of the uh, major problems uh, in blood clots, is just one of the problems, but. Uh, you know, I think it's a minority of people that are volunteer uh, volunteering to uh, to get the uh, COVID vaccine uh, at, at the moment. So uh, that that's that's a that's a hopeful sign uh, as far as far as as far as I'm concerned. And Tom, yeah, uh, to me, the the rollout of these vaccines and the whole uh, narrative around them is is absolutely grotesque. Um, I think Sutret Bhakti, a microbiologist from here in Germany, made the very eloquent point 
that for the vast majority of the population, the risk profile of this disease um, is so low that it would almost be virtually impossible to design a study large enough to detect a net positive from a vaccine for this disease um, vis-a-vis unknown, unquantified risks, or even the real concrete risks that are already manifesting themselves, never mind what this dangerous experimental technology can do uh, in the future. Uh, and for the, the population that is at risk, uh, which is still, there's a large question about how much of this is an impression created by the senicide events uh, imposed by lockdown and the media hysteria. Uh, a lot of that is undetermined, but even so, that's a population which vaccines are, are not almost ever made for because their risk profile is so broad that, that identifying a risk, uh, a benefit is so difficult. Um, but what's grotesque to me more than anything is the first world chauvinism of our comrades, like Adam said, uh, you know, this essentially being at most uh, complicit in constructing this world of Bantu stands, um, where these, either whether it's first world states or corporations, are given the right to dominate, to impose internal borders across our society, uh, which will entrench and exacerbate existing inequalities. Uh, and the thing that's so striking to me is if you, if you believed even the mainstream account of, of this disease, even then, to me, you, you would have to be a barbarian to accept this vaccine under the age of 50 before it was spread to at-risk populations in the third world. So the fact that our, our comrades are willingly uh, accepting this privileged position uh, and, and not saying, you know, especially if you think, oh, the capitalists hate lockdown, they want to end it, they're engaged in all these conspiracies to spread disinformation because they desperately want to get back to production. Uh, well, then here's your big revolutionary move. Refuse the vaccine for the healthy people who don't need it by the mainstream account of this before the at-risk profile. But they're not doing it because so much of this is actually rationalization for this first world chauvinism, um, which you know, we have to oppose root and branch. Um, and I think it's important to to reveal that you know, even if, again, the whole account was true, the risk to the demographics of the third world, given their age um, and what we've seen of the pathogen, which no honest person can really think has been stopped by lockdowns from spreading uh, in the third world. What you're really demanding is because of your first world hypochondria um, that the third world is going to dedicate huge portions of their thin public health budgets to a vaccine which is not a net need for them. Right? This is this first world chauvinistic demand that undergirds so much of this vaccine passport discourse. Even if the pathogen was as deadly as they say and the, and the vaccines were perfect, it would still be perverse to impose this demand on the third world, which could save billions of more lives with those resources. So. I, I agree with that. I will just add that um, lining up to get the vaccine has been very, very popular and enthusiastically embraced by everyone. Everyone here that I know, everyone around me, it is um, a really kind of disgusting new world where everybody I run into asks me whether or not I've been vaccinated, friends, loved ones, strangers. Um, it's it's just disgusting and creepy. And I actually feel like we've reached this point now where the story is like about 
how you know the United States has hit this point where everybody who was willing and excited to get vaccinated has done so, and we're now starting to run into the, you know, the resistors and the the stories in the in the media are about that. And I actually feel like they're very well poised to break through that next layer of people once they start saying you can't come to this basketball game, you can't get on that airplane, you know, X, Y, or Z. I already hear that amongst people around me who have not yet been vaccinated, you know, when that happens, that's going to be the tipping point. So I think they're going to be pretty um, successful in getting another a whole bunch of bodies um, into their scary story uh, experiment. And I think also that, you know, I mean, I just, I agree with everything that Tom just said. And I, I would just say just to like, you know, take, take one example, if, in San Francisco, two times the number of people died from drug overdose last year as died from COVID, right? If you want to save people's lives, imagine if you took all of that money that was being spent on getting people into this vaccine uh, test and into this world of like apps and vaccine apartheid and spent one fraction of that on, you know, housing, drug treatment, clean injection sites, any of the things that could address um, the number of really atrocious and unnecessary overdose deaths that happened last year in our city. Thank you, David. Yeah, I, I agree with all the, the, the previous speakers, but I think the um, the one almost mistake that's being made is to refer to these as vaccines. They're not vaccines. They do not contain inactivated virus. So, you know, if you have a flu jab, it contains inactivated influenza A or B. What happens is um, your immune system detects the viral material. You develop an immune response to that holistic virus. These injections are RNA-based or mRNA. So these are instructions to instruct your cells to produce uh, part of this so-called virus, if it, assuming it exists, um, which is the spike protein. And we were told, oh, well, the spike protein, it's, uh, it's benign, right? So it's okay for your body to produce it. It's perfectly safe. So your body is, is, is uh, given the genetic instructions to produce the spike protein in your own cells. Somewhere in your body, could be anywhere, could be in your, you know, it could be in your brain for, for all you know. And um, then your, your, your immune system develops a, an immune response to that spike protein. Now, the problem is all previous attempts to develop uh, an actual vaccine for any coronavirus has always failed. They've always failed on the animal trials because it has always led to uh, what is called antibody-dependent enhancement, which is basically where um, your, the, the subjects will develop initially a strong immune response, but then months down the line, if they're later re-exposed to the virus, their body, their immune system will overreact. And uh, this process, what's called a cytokine storm, happens where basically your body ends up almost attacking itself. And this has led to deaths and illness, severe illness, disease enhancement. And I think this is actually what's going to happen this winter. I think these so-called, well, these injections are actually going to make more people ill or worse this winter. And I think Tom has previously alluded to the, some of the actors behind this, people like Bill Gates, 
you know, who have a clear eugenics agenda, right? A depopulation agenda. And, you know, even people sympathetic to uh, opposing lockdowns might not agree with me on this, but I do think that these injections are designed to cause illness and death, right? And I think they're going to monetize this by selling people the, um, the medical solutions and the drugs to treat what these very injections have, have actually caused to people. Uh, and of course, sick people are a lot easier, easier to control if you're reliant on hospitals and drugs um, for your own existence. You're a lot easier to control. And that's what the, uh, the vaccine passport is. It's another way of controlling people. Um, it's treating us like cattle. You know, uh, lockdowns are used, being used to break people down, to atomize us. I mean, this, like Adam said, this is fascism, right? This is really absolutely terrible. And they're going to start to roll out these injections on children after the summer. I mean, I just can't believe it, to be honest with you. Um, and yet, a according to the official UK government stats, two thirds of adults have had their first jab. So... I mean, who knows what this winter is going to be look, be looking like? You know, I'm very concerned. Um, yeah, I just wanted to add to what David said that um, you know, I, I you know, we've discussed this topic a lot in our show, and um, at least from my perspective, it's not just about the vaccine. Yes, you know, that's one aspect of it, but it is about creating this techno-fascist world. You know, implementing technologies, uh, surveillance tech. Uh, registries, uh, you know, borders really like uh, some some of you mentioned, you know, within, within internal national borders, you know, segregating, creating this apartheid state that's already kind of in place. I've, I've gone to baseball games here uh, when we reopen and you have a vaccinated section and non, a non-vaccinated section. And so that that what that does is puts pressure on people. I know people, <laughs> plenty of people that work in the medical field that have the reservations but they fall into peer pressure. So it's not even, you know, the, the imposition itself uh, from the state, you know, it, it is the social pressure that ha the, the state has created essentially, because everyone has uh, accepted this, you know, propaganda, the constant bombardment with the propaganda. And so, yeah, I mean, I do think that vaccines play a role and they're an element in, in, in what's happening. And we've discussed in the past that, you know, you can't understand this if you don't, Look, pan out and look at the competition among states and why every you know imperial state china the us russia europe everyone has a stake in pushing this narrative and then you have the colonies in the south that you know what are you going to do if you don't have this tech even cuba is is you know it's in the game because they know that if they're not in the game of you know controlling biotech and, and artificial intelligence then you know you're going to be a colony and and, and fall behind so so again, it is a, the vaccines for me player. It's an element of the major uh, uh, it, uh, it, what's happening, you know, at a macro level, and which is really the restructuring of capitalism in my mind. And um, you know, we refer to what's happened here as a control uh, collapse of the economy, you know, in the U.S. Because when you really look at the money where, you know, the billionaires have doubled their wealth in, you know, during the pandemic. And, you know, that is kind of a, a very basic, you know, evidence of that not, you know, the capitalist class didn't lose, you know, yeah, some of them, they sacrificed some industries, maybe like travel, but 
look at what industries are really, really growing. Can I just say quickly around this? Oh, Tom, I, I do want to hear you, but one, one thing I just want to say, I'm I'm very disheartened by what's going on, but I'm also encouraged in some ways. I don't know how this will happen in the northern um, uh, countries, but in Mexico, where I'm from, because I'm uh, there are entire communities that are rejecting people from coming in to in, uh, inject communities uh, because of the government. So they, they reject and... I don't know how that's going. To, I, I I just don't see that happening in the USA or in Britain or any other uh, first world country, you know. So I I, I just think it's interesting um, those contrasts. Uh, Tom, you were going to say something. Yeah, I just wanted to say that you know I share uh, David's uh, skepticism. Uh, even if I'm I don't know what the mechanism will be. I just um, I've been struck by specifically our comrades on the left and. It, particularly even on the Marxist left, that there's been this idealized uh, pseudo-analysis that says capitalism seeks to exploit workers. It was the same analysis that said, so they don't want lockdown, right? And they said, uh, you know, so why would they want to make workers ill when they could exploit them? Um, and this is this overly abstract, of course, concrete capitalists that were dominating the, the British Empire fought the opium wars, right? It made... Uh, Chinese workers very ill and unproductive because for those concrete capitalists in that conjuncture, it was a more efficient way for them to suck the uh, accumulated value out of the Chinese empire uh, and to also undermine it. Um, just like the CIA was happy to funnel uh, drugs into ghettos in America and suck money out of those communities and undermine them. Um, and we're dealing with a, a capitalist class, the dominant factors of which are not involved in the production of commodities, uh, consumer goods that people want. They're involved in, uh, you know, creating these addictive opioids and tech products and forcing them through monopoly and force. It's like, oh, but this is what a capitalist does. It's, it's been a real point of confusion for our comrades. Yeah, so most socialists in the world support uh, versions of lockdown, vaccination programs, contact tracing, and even censorship. In your opinion, why has the Marxist revolutionary left gotten this moment so wrong? I think there's a lot of reasons. <laughs> there's, a, I'll, uh, there's a couple that um, I think I wanna highlight. Um, I mean, first I will say like I was, earlier when I was talking about sort of my initial action when the first lockdowns happened, like I, I at, back then in last March and April, at a certain level, I understand the focus, um, which was the focus of most of what would be called the radical left here of, you know, we can't expect capitalists to um, uh, take care of us or have our safety at interest. So we can't go back to work because if we go back to work, they're just all okay with having us all um, get sick and die, which I think has continued to be the predominant argument of what is still maybe a visible left here in the Bay Area. Um, concerns about um, workers being back at work without adequate protective gear or um, being asked to lie about how they got infected with COVID and um, things like that. Uh, I, I, I understood that a year ago, like I said, <laughs> but I feel like that is the place where the left in the Bay Area um, and in the United States has been trapped and has not been able to get itself out from under. Um, partly, I think, you know, there's been a complete and utter collapse. So I don't even know what we mean when we talk about like the Marxist or revolutionary left in the United States anymore. 
I, I don't even know that that makes sense as a, as, a, as a grouping. I don't know that it exists. Um, part of the problem, I think, is that at least in my experience, we have been so obsessed with chasing a line and having a correct line to lead the working class um, to fall behind our correct line that, like the left more broadly, the space for debate has been utterly shut down and closed. And this is a fundamental restructuring of the way that work is being done in the world right now. And the fact that we have this habit and practice on the revolutionary left and the left more broadly of you need to quickly get in line with what the correct stance is and the correct position to have has meant that I don't think we've had the space or the ability or the habit or practice of really debating what the hell is going on with each other. And um, that has been um, a really, really big problem here, particularly in the United States, just, you know, the stranglehold of the Democratic and Republican Party, official politics, everything is separated into red and blue. Every debate gets narrowed down to what color the city or the state or the union that you're in, you know, belongs to. And it has an extremely, I think the effect that that's had on the revolutionary left, it's been an extreme um, focus on um, finding the, you know, maybe some people that you can sort of peel off from that within, still within the structure of the Democratic Party. And so, you know, if you had people who called themselves revolutionaries supporting a candidate running for the Democratic Party, Bernie Sanders, I mean, it's just been a long, slow path of degradation, which has left us in a position, I think, just utterly unorganized and um, unable to debate the humongous changes that are happening around us. David? I think it's, um, I mean, yeah, like AJ said, there, there are so many issues, but I mean, my kind of take on it, one of the main issues, I think, with the so-called Marxist left um, is that the, the organizations are structured like, essentially like cults, okay? They do not, in my experience, they do not allow internal debates. They do not encourage freedom of thinking. Uh, often it's, uh, you know, they have one intellectual, a few intellectuals who come up with the ideas and these are just filtered down to the membership. And this is what you're doing today, you know, sell these newspapers or whatever, you know. And um, I, at the very beginning, I alluded to uh, the fact that I was involved in a faction fight within the, the Socialist Party. And um, it was really shocking seeing comrades who I'd known for years just suddenly turn on me because I'd raised disagreements with the leadership. And I think that was uh, almost a kind of a microcosm of what we've seen now with, uh, with this COVID stuff, with the, the you know, vaccines. And you know, anybody who raises any criticisms must be a conspiracy theorist and a nutter, you know. I've uh, I've lost so many comrades and friends, uh, even members of my own family don't even want to really talk to me, you know. And it's it's um, I think it's because the Marxist organisations they're structured like cults, and what's happening now is essentially a big psychological operation from the state. So in the UK we have the uh, a group called SAGE, which is the scientists advising the government. And a third of them are behavioral psychologists, behavioral um, nudge, they call them nudge people, basically trying to very subtly and almost insidiously influence people's behavior. And um, 
they've got someone, uh, Susan Michi, who's uh, a member of the Communist Party, and she's a millionaire, and she's involved in this, you know. Um, but this is this is classic kind of Stalinism in a way, because I think that the way the far left see a socialist society being constructed is like a giant psychological operation that you will mold people from the top down. You will mold people, you you know, to become you know ideal socialist workers from the top down, like a psychological operation. And you compare that to, say, Che Guevara, who had more of a humanist approach, who said, look, we have to demonstrate, you know, uh, these the virtues of socialism in action, right? So he he would go out and, and do additional work and, um, you know, you, you kind of, you, you demonstrate the idea in practice, which previously I would have written off as idealism, right? But I think that this is the only way to do it because you cannot force people like socialism cannot be built by forcing people or brainwashing people. And I think the reason why basically the Marxist left were bought into all this is because they want to do this. It's just that they've been beaten to it by the bourgeoisie. Right. Um, and I think deep down, that's why they identify more with this COVID fascism than humanity, frankly. Uh, Tom, um, uh, yeah, so uh, I, I think the, the the diagnosis of the kind of structural disarray of a lot of the Marxist left is basically um, accurate, uh, although I, I see it more as a consequence of the, the uh, global division of labor um, and the fact that um, a lot of the left in the West orientates itself towards the labor aristocracy or has an insufficient analysis of the labor aristocracy of the real class composition uh, of their um, national states and, and are not sufficiently oriented towards the global working class which is super exploited to produce the privileges which generate the first world chauvinism of significant portions of the working class in western states um, which makes them orientate themselves towards the state um, and this means in practice that a lot of the Marxist leftist parties um, orient themselves to this class and then not very successfully because that class is not interested yet so long as it has that privileged position in Marxism or to the petty bourgeoisie and to intellectuals and this on the other hand leads in particular I think to uh, an acceptance of um, petty bourgeois thought boundaries, uh, particularly for me, a very important model. What we're living through is 9-11. Um, and one of the things that struck me and, you know, when I was constantly doubting myself and saying, how, how could I have this analysis and all these um, parties and sources that I hitherto trusted or had some faith in be so wrong about it. And I did reflect on the fact that I don't know a single major Western communist party that has any meaningful analysis of 9-11. And as soon in left-wing spaces as you try to broach this topic, you know, some Jacobin reader uh, will tell you that you're about to alienate the working class and we can't touch on these things. When actually the majority of, of Americans, for instance, don't believe the government's line on 9-11. Um, and if you're aware of how disproportionately middle-class people are scandalized by any questions about 9-11, you can easily deduce, even without the, the numbers that most of the working class 
uh, as, as anyone with experience in working class job knows, do not believe the government are not afraid of conspiracy theories. Um, so this whole analysis that to me is rooted in, in, in class um, is where I think part of the, the problem has come from. Also, I think 9-11 is such an important model in that we have this clear ruling class operation that was um, coordinated along with this perfect fake left response that flattered every leftist um, line, right? This was blowback. This is the consequence. This is, you know, the, the result of America's imperialism and the, the people standing up. And it seemed to flatter all of these left wing lines, even though implicitly that whole conception was loaded with, again, racist conceptions about Arabs and Muslims that leftists found themselves uncritically um, pushing through. But it was so perfect and it was offered and it flattered all of these positions um, that it it was well mobilized because it was, it was strategically well operated by the ruling class. Although I will just say I don't see how Stalinism has anything to do with what Susan Michie does or is a useful term for understanding um, her or her compatriots. Thanks, Tom. Eduardo had to leave because he doesn't like 9-11 conspiracies. Okay. <laughs> That's a complete joke. I'm sorry, Eduardo. All right. Uh, You're alluding to a previous episode where yeah, I wouldn't concede with you that. on 9-11. <laughs> uh, Adam and then Kenny, if you want to come in. I think the uh, the, the Marxist left um, uh, is is divided into, and I'm going to use these labels here, and uh, I, I'm uh, I'm would stress that I'm not using these labels necessarily as pajorative uh, labels, but uh, you know the Marxist left is uh, you know, divided into roughly the Stalinist and Maoist side um, and the Trotskyist uh, side. And in my in my view, uh, uh, you know the 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 role, the role of Stalinists and Maoists, uh, whether they're in uh, what what we refer to as the deformed worker states, or whether they're uh, in the the Western capitalist uh, states, or or in the the third world states, the the effectively the job of a Stalinist or Maoist uh, party or organisation is to get the workers to support the government in some form. Or, or to get the the workers to uh, try and uh, push for some reforms from the government, uh, and uh, so uh, it's not. It wasn't really a surprise, a surprise, so much of a surprise to me that the Stalinist and Maoist parties uh, would support the government on on something like COVID, uh, because they they kind of do that most of the most of the time uh, any, anyway. Um, and um, even though this COVID is so much more than than what, what ordinarily happens, it's it's so much more than expecting a reform from the government. But uh, you know, I think that's being re re repeated for the Stalinist and Maoist parties in in that in that case. Um, with regards to the, to the Trotskyist uh, left, uh, although those who identify as Trotskyist or claim to be Trotskyist, they have they have at least. Uh, at least nominally more of a sense that that uh, the governments or capitalist governments are not our governments and that that they're, they're not the governments of the working class um and that and that workers need to form their own government their own state um and and so on and so forth they have more of a sense of that uh but what has in in my view prevented them from putting that 
perspective into into uh, into practice is their conception of science uh, in that they have they seem to have this uh, idea that bourgeois science uh, or capitalist science cannot be corrupted, uh, where, whereas uh, all all other aspects of capitalist society uh, can be distorted and can be corrupted by the process of capitalism. Uh, but they seem to to imagine that science and and healthcare and uh, things related to that uh, and and vaccine development and and things like that to that uh, can't be corrupted by by a big pharma or by the corporations, uh, which is which is an extraordinary position to have. Um, but they seem they seem to have that, uh, um, and so uh, they. Uh, they they take on all of the uh, all of the bourgeois science to do with COVID with all with all of its distortions and all of its uh, its fake fake science in, in a lot of ways. Um, so that I I think that is what prevents a lot of the Trotskyist or self claimed uh, Trotskyist organisations from 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 seeing and uh, it's uh, so so both of them. Um, have difficulty seeing, or they can't see, or they don't want to see that the actual class line is 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 COVID. COVID is the class line uh, for 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 the working class at the moment. Um, it, it, the it, the moment you take on any of the COVID ideology uh, on board, uh, or any of these Marxist parties, so uh, cl- self-claimed Marxist parties, take on any aspect of the COVID ideology, you're you're using the ideology of the ruling class. Uh, that they're using against the working class. So, uh, you know, you, you really have to reject it all. Uh, all of the COVID ideology has to be rejected. Um, but unfortunately, yeah, a lot of the Marxist left have a lot of difficulty uh, doing that. Um, but I just want, to, just want to mention that one of them, the, 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 uh, the, the Spartacus League, has just recently, only 12 months after the fact, They've just recently come out with an anti-lockdown uh, position, uh, but uh, and but it's very partial. They're only opposed to lockdowns. They're not opposed to vaccines, uh, not opposed to face masks or tracking and tracing or anything else. Um, so, uh, but so that that's a, it's a very partial position. But uh, you know, it's it's perhaps a a small crack, a, a very small crack um, in in the. In, in the what what or what we refer to as the lockdown left, um, and so you know we're trying to ho- hopefully sort of exploit that and to to drive more of a wedge um, in, into the Marxist left to uh, to try and try and bring them around at least. And Kenny, do you want to add anything? Yeah, maybe just kind of summarizing you know all of your points. Uh, you know, I agree with AJ. Where is the Marxist left? At least for me, uh, I. You know, I've come to, you know, Marxism in the last three years, where it's really made sense. Uh, before that, I was more of a liberal. But uh, the point is that I, I don't. I've never been part of an organization, but I, I see in organizing uh, what David has, um, you know, referred to as this, you know, top-down approach, and you know, that to me is not socialism. And it it will require democratizing uh, knowledge, you know, getting it out of academia, and you know, um, you know, Marxism. That is my mission to kind of you know uh, navigate Marxism with comrades here, you know, people that are willing to understand and to have the courage to 
question themselves any leadership, even, you know, especially actually our own leadership, um, because that is the world that I envision. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I personally, because of my context, I, I don't see any real like left uh, at the moment. What I see is uh, right wing right wingers coming to be uh, progressives, um, you know, and so yeah i mean it's a long fight i guess uh and i think we're at the very building blocks again starting from scratch uh in 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 the job the task is to again increase kind of uh, encourage other people to be empowered to be wrong to question to disagree with any leadership especially the bourgeois uh storylines uh, in the media and come to their own conclusions yeah i'm i'm sort of changing the script as we go Part of me thinks now that we should go to question eight, which is what do y'all think the real agenda is driving this? And I, Kenny, I think it's fine. Is that okay? Can we go to that one? Uh, okay. So in your opinion, what is the real agenda driving the mainstream COVID narrative in the state repression? And as isolated as we are, what do you think we need to begin to do to fight it? I mean, I mean, ultimately... The uh, I, I believe the real agenda is is to dramatically depress uh, the cost of labor power uh, that that is that is wages and uh, to do that the 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 capitalist class need to unleash uh, horrific uh, levels of political repression um, you know to uh, so that the workers um, are, are hampered in their fight back or 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 in fact even can't fight back. Um, and I, I, th I think that's 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 what 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 they have done. Um, so uh, and uh, and before we were talking about uh, a, a form of COVID uh, as a form of fascism or lockdowns as a as a form of fascism. Um, of, of what 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 we find in 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 a fascist, uh, fascist uh, situation is that it's not actually the state power, uh, the capitalist state power that is. Uh, uh, that, that is wielded against workers. Often, it's 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 uh, like your for, your your workmates, your families, your colleagues, or your former uh, colleagues, or your former uh, uh, comrades, or your your former uh, people that you work with, even your family, uh, your your people in your community. The, these are the people. Uh, it's that social. That's a Im immense peer pressure and social pressure. Um, that weighs down against you. That's that's actually that's actually how uh, you know, fascist political repression works. I mean, ultimately, the capitalist state will uh, use brute force uh, if it if it needs to. But um, uh, it, it's it's those ones that you have to split from who you've uh, formerly very close to. Um, that uh, so uh, what what we need to do to to, to fight it uh, very briefly. Uh, I, I think we do, without getting on to the next question, uh, I, th I think we do need to work with uh, the, f the forces that are opposing the lockdowns, the anti-lockdown movement or the, those pe people that are opposing the lockdowns, even if they come from the right. Uh, and initially, I, th I think this is our, our only option. And uh, that, uh, that doesn't mean that we should uh, you know, ad adapt our politics to the right um, at all. Um, we, should, we should try and... Uh, you know, maintain or, or try and uh, develop a, a left-wing um, perspective for that. But we, but 
we, I don't think we have any choice. We have to work with uh, those forces from the right that are opposing lockdowns in the name of liberty or, or whatever their reasons are, are for, for doing that. Uh, uh, because I, yeah, I think that's that's a, an important um, starting point. So, um, so Tom, you're next. I think um, you know it, it's hard to maybe read the tea leaves about exactly what uh, the ruling class is is, is looking to do. Uh, but what was striking to me is particularly looking at that uh, Johns Hopkins model, um, where they uh, not long before this, I think at least many people in the anti-lockdown movement are aware that. Leading uh, elites, public uh, officials got together and wargamed a coronavirus pandemic scenario, um, right? And they came up with this pamphlet that was published of these predictions for the world. And this has been used as like, oh, well, you know, conspiracy. And then um, it's been one of these useful techniques of kind of conspiring in plain sight so that the expose is uh, therefore deflated. Uh, but what was more striking to me was in the actual press material that released when they looked at these four different scenarios for the future after a serious pandemic, every single scenario that these ruling class elites were predicting at some point, 20, 30 years down the line, started going towards massive social disruption or unrest. And that the ruling elites are just as aware as we are on the left of the intense contradictions in the system, of the ecological crisis, of the instability of this. I mean, socialism has become more popular than ever in many places. That's why the ruling class needs to co-opt it, right? Just like was the case in the, uh, the 20th century. Uh, so they know and they don't sit on their hands. You know, I think the ruling class is aware of these manifest risks to themselves. Um, and like Marx said in Capital, mankind makes their own history, but they don't do so in conditions of their own choosing. Um, a point that my comrade Molly Klein often makes is that capitalists are not necessarily so fond of capitalism, right? There's a lot of things they don't like about capitalism, a lot of risk involved in the whole structure of, of this mode of production, that if they could get a more stable slave-like system, um, you know, they're, they're not like they have some ideological conviction that they're dedicated to the free market. Uh, and so we have to get rid of these, I think, illusions uh, and appreciate the, the reality that this may be a truly ambitious ruling class assault like it seems to be. And that in the past, the ruling class has looked for depopulation and mass enslavement, whatever it might be. It's not in our interest. And that's very clear. Um, and so I think we have to be kind of concrete about that. Uh, as far as what we can do, um, I think unifying on the left is important. Uh, even That's why maybe I'll refrain from engaging in any defense of my fellow Maoist and Stalinist, uh, in the interest of, like the, uh, the Friar Linke here, has made an effort to, to cast a broad net. All people with basic left-wing commitments who are opposed to these lockdowns, building up a structure um, of groups all throughout Germany. Um, and again, I, I'm, I'm not representing uh, the group here at all. I should make that clear. I'm just an individual member and even not as alive to as much going on in it as fluent German speakers, but it's been a pretty effective structure so far of, of creating local groups with a huge emphasis on grassroots democracy. I know the NGOs have kind of um, almost made that concept uh, seem compromised, but that's what we need, true rigorous democracy uh, at every level to, to actually create the movement we need. As far as working 
um, who we work with, I think we have to be very clear and consistent about our principles. Um, so I, I'm not interested necessarily in working with openly right-wing groups, but I think this whole um, contact guilt game of, you know, this person was in this group, which was in this group, which was related to this person, um, is only going to be wielded against us and uh, is a game that the ruling class can always dominate in the media and in the spectacle um, and that we have to avoid and, and, and build our movement towards a, towards, a, towards an open orientation, work with the movements that are there on the ground, which aren't explicitly right wing almost anywhere, so far as I know, um, because anti-lockdownism is not intrinsically right wing in any way. So there are right wing people present. And that's not necessarily a problem. Um, it's about clear about our principles and our, our goal, which is to stop this ruling class offensive. David? Yeah, so, I mean, I guess what's happening is, you know, you could call it the Great Reset. And uh, Klaus Schwab, the chairman of the World Economic Forum, literally wrote the book, uh, COVID-19, The Great Reset. Okay, so the Great Reset is... a uh, you could call that the the ideology that's their kind of playbook uh, in the same way that for Thatcher it was, you know, neoliberalism or whatever. This is kind of their um, justification for what they're doing, right? Um, I mean, the analogy with the 70s and the 80s in the UK anyway with Thatcher was that um, the, the UK was facing, you know, profitability crisis, because of, um, I think, what Adam alluded to before, the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. And there was this kind of new technology coming in in the 70s in the form of microprocessors um, in terms of, uh, you know, computerization technology, internet, cable, uh, networking. Um, but for that new technology to be fully realized, there had to be an economic crash to basically purge the unproductive capital out of society and allow um, the smaller companies that haven't invested so much capital, they can now capitalize on these new technologies, you know, this new computer technology in this case, in the case of the 80s. Um, and then obviously that led to society being kind of almost re-engineered on the basis of computers. Um, uh, and the computer... The 80s really led to a new wave of globalization. You didn't need to, um, it became a lot easier to outsource production because you can monitor companies abroad using your you know, computers and so on. Banking was internationalized a lot easier um, and it completely re-engineered society. You, know, you no longer had near full employment. Um, you had more computerization and uh, you know, jobs being replaced by computers, but at least then there was the chance to retrain in these new industries being created, like the computer industry. The problem is what's happening now in this so-called fourth industrial revolution is that there won't be enough jobs created, new jobs, to replace the ones that are being replaced by automation, being replaced by AI, being replaced by, um, you know, um, you, you've seen, Andrew, in, in, in education, how that's going to be automated. It's health as well. Um, and so they've got a massive surplus population, the ruling class. They've got a po surplus population, at least in the West anyway, where um, our economy is oriented around finance and services and really is based on 
exploiting the the so-called third world. Um, we're we're surplus to requirements. A lot of us, <laughs> yeah, you know, and um, they're going to have to manage us in a way that um, we don't overthrow the system. And uh, maybe they want to kill us. Maybe they want to kill a large swathes of. I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah, like Tom said, I you know we can't we we couldn't possibly think about what they actually plan to do. But it, this is all about um, social reengineering uh, and using these new technologies that that have been on the horizon. But they need an economic crash, an economic recession, to um, enable them to be employed in um and 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 basically lead to a new uh, a new wave of profitability for for capital um so just briefly on what can we do well yes we absolutely do have to hook up with the whole of the anti-lockdown movement and it, that it, that will include people on the right but that's this is not an unprecedented um kind of thing to do so i know in the u.s the, the Black Panthers kind of allied with um, these kind of redneck organizations to fight poverty and things like that, even though they had initial differences on on, on race issues. But by working together, they, they actually overcame those. Um, in, in the UK, we had a kind of a similar thing where uh, in the 80s, where the miners were on strike and gay and lesbian groups went to, to support them. You know, and miners were kind of... Um, you know, coal miners, you know, very traditional conservative men, uh, you know, very heterosexual, shall we say. And then you had these kind of, you know, LGB groups supporting them, which was quite, uh, it's quite an unusual combination. But by working together and supporting them because they had a common enemy, the Thatcher government, uh, it, it actually cemented trust. And, and, and uh, I think that's kind of what we have to do. I mean, in the US, you're going to have a lot of Trump supporters a lot of um you know pro-gun pro-gun and and more religious people who are very into the constitution and liberty they're going to be your best allies yeah in the us those people uh in the uk the situation is slightly different but um yeah we absolutely do need to um do things that we would have not otherwise considered before um aj yeah, I think other folks have talked about this well from a sort of uh, wide lens perspective. Um, I will say, I think this sort of restructuring of work and sort of massive addition of, um, you know, more bodies, more bodies than are needed to do the work that is there. I think I, on the individual level, I first started to see this obviously with the teaching situation where it started to feel like we are being uh, decollectivized, pulled out of our workplaces, sent back. There was a moment where I felt like this is like, um, this is like taking in work. We're all being turned into individual small contractors and we're all being turned into people who can now, rather than being together um, in a workplace um, or being together in a union, we can sort of, the, the competition between individual workers is being pitched much, much higher. You know, you look at it in transportation industry, what's happened with uh, uh, 
Lyft drivers and Uber drivers, you've got it in teaching where now, you know, you can teach from anywhere in the world. It's certainly happened with, you know, outsourcing through technology work for many, 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 many years um, with the food services, like these giant kitchens being created now where, you know, many restaurants could be happening under one roof and it doesn't really matter what restaurant it is. I think in every level, people are starting to see the way their work doesn't have to rely on a workplace and then that how much that decollectivizes us that that level of I mean there is a certainly there's a with lockdown and everything there's an arm of sort of direct state repression but I think the way that work has is being changed is um, putting us into more direct competition immediately with each other and sort of um, breaking down those bonds of solidarity that are more easily forged when you're in an actual workplace or in an actual um, union and at the same time now there's just um, you know, that decentralization plus just increased competition for this, you know, false, whether it's over healthcare or, you know, not having enough oxygen in a hospital so that we can talk about how many people are going to die of COVID or, you know, increased unemployment, lack of access to um, basic, basic needs. All of this is good for the capitalists um, to and it's particularly in the United States, we've had such massively low levels of class struggle that I think this question about who we unite with and who we fight with is very, very, very abstract for someone like me who, you know, knows these good stories about the Black Panthers and knows these good stories about what happened with the minors in the LGBT community. Um, it's still very much a thing that's in my head. And I, to be quite honest, not in my heart when I was like confronted with the idea of going out to be at a protest with um, families who I have this idea might be particularly anti-union or, you know, might be, which I'm pissed off in my union. Like my union's been wrong all school year, you know? But I think there's a place where um, we're not at sort of the rubber meets the road <laughs> in who we're actually uniting with. That's very abstract to the way it's kind of um, framed right now. I think individually, it's about like looking at talking to families one-on-one -on -one in twos and threes who may have perspectives that are uh, potentially very anti-union or something that may sound a little bit more right-wing. And I absolutely agree that we have to be talking to those people um, and uniting with them at this time. I mean, I, I have a sense, right? Like we've discussed in this show what we think is going on, you know, like the whole restructuring of society for, you know, ends that benefit the capitalist class. Um, of the world. Um, and for me, you know, understanding a lot of this stuff is super hard. You know, I, I sometimes talk to this person um, named um, Alison McDowell, and, and I, I don't fully understand everything, even though I believe I have a certain uh, capacity to just stick and, you know, to a subject and dissect it. And, and so coming to the realization that not every, everyone has that, you know, privilege or, or possibility. Some people are, you know, just overwhelmed. And some people shut down when like all these things are dumped on them. And so for me, it's, it's about trying to make answers or at least my answers, you know, what I think accessible to people, um, you know, because I do think that I reject this binary of right wing, left wing. I actually happen to think most of the world is right wing, <laughs> conservative, not right wing, conservative. Um, you know, my family in, in Guatemala, you know, in, in a lot of people that don't live in, you know, liberal cities, 
they're actually conservative in values, uh, but they know something is wrong. Something is doesn't add up. And, and so I think that is our job, you know, because again, just referring back to Alison, she said this quote that when you're put in a time and a place and you see things that others don't, it's your job to say something, to be loud. And I think that is our job, to be loud, to keep at it to, as long as we can, uh, to continue to try to have answers. And, and, and that includes um, respecting, you know, people that we disagree with, right-wingers. Um, but because this period, COVID, has actually shown me that <laughs> there is more common ground with them than I thought there was, you know, you know, on the subject of guns, on the subject of taxes, on the subject, you know, of, you know, uh, dictatorship and control, you know, liberty and in in individual expression. Um, because I think erroneously, sometimes people think that we socialists don't want that. But no, we do. You know, we want freedom. Like, that's what I'm in, at least, you know, in, in showing that, you know, we are in the same fight for freedom. I think there is common ground. Uh, we just have different approaches. But I think that is our task, you know, to 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 talk to both, you know, the right wing and the left. And at the moment, the right wing is easier to talk to, for me at least, than, than the left. And so finding that common ground and respecting them enough to disagree with them and say, I, I, I agree on these terms, but not because of those reasons. You know, that's something I, I've learned from Lipson. <laughs> that, and, and, and so hoping that that gets us somewhere, but, and also understanding that I'm not here to impose anything on anyone else. I'm here to share my truth. I'm sure I'm here to share what I understand because this could happen or this is happening. And I think, for me, that's that's my approach, and that's all we can really do. So this has been a great discussion, and uh, first of all, I want to thank everyone for being part of this. Um, and I think hopefully we'll, we'll we'll do something like this again, or we'll see each other again in some way. But I'd like people to finish up, maybe with a month or two minute, just final thoughts they have about anything they like to say that they didn't get a chance to say today. Um, and you know, Eduardo and myself will probably get a chance to talk as well as, of course, Kenny. So. Um, AJ, if you could start that off. Sure. I think the biggest challenge for me right now is that um, I'm trying to get in touch with as many sources and people and wrap my head around what is going on at this gigantic global level. But when I think about what it is that I need to do, it is so tiny and so local. And it is a, literally about, I am at my school. These are the group of coworkers I have around me. And what is the thing, given this gigantic picture that I'm trying to hold in my head, what is the thing I can do right here at in high school. Um, but I think especially for us being as isolated as we are in the Bay Area, it's not about like alliances and other groups and marches and rallies. It's really about like me going back to work and talking to my coworkers about doing that under terms that we want to do or which families we feel like we can reach out and talk to about our fears about what school is going to look like in the fall. Um, and I think that is definitely the case for us here in the Bay Area and probably you know the United States as a whole the problem that we're trying to get our arms around is massive but the next steps are are very very local and very small uh, I mean as a sort of concluding uh, sort of comment I guess uh, I'd like to, uh, uh, as, as to as to what we can do concretely uh, I would encourage uh, uh, people to uh, maybe the there's not an anti-lockdown movement where you are locally, but uh, 
uh, certainly from from our experiences out here is is that uh, uh, yes, there there might be conspiracy theorists involved. There might be uh, some right wingers involved in in the anti lockdown movement, but I wouldn't say that's the majority. Uh, the the majority of people uh, in the anti lockdown movement are. Uh, more for, uh, say, civil rights or uh, democratic rights and for you know, you know, freedom of movement and, and things like this. So uh, you know, Marxists can go in there and uh, work with them on that basis. Uh, there's, there's no uh, real reason why, why we, we can't work, to work with them on, on that issue. Uh, and, um, yeah, you, it... Your socialists in there might might cop a bit of flack uh, uh, initially, but not from the large majority. Uh, and so it, it's worth trying to uh, involve, uh, you know, your your work workmates uh, uh, and any of your contacts uh, in in that, because the anti lockdown movement they do want the numbers, uh, and, and they they do they do honestly want anybody who is opposed to this this lockdown agenda. Um, so uh, I, I think we need to do that. And, you know, uh, I mean, while we still have or certainly our organisation still has the perspective of uh, somehow out of that building a Marxist vanguard party or an international network of Marxist vanguard parties, I don't think we, we can't lose lose sight of that um, at the same time. Uh, but uh, But certainly... Yeah, the, the, where it exists, it seems that there are possibilities. Uh, 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 there's a lot of potentialities uh, for, for this anti-lockdown movement to, to potentially win, uh, win some victories. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's what I'd in, encourage. Thanks, Adam. Uh, David? Well, I think the you know the tasks uh, in, in front of us really that the things that we're facing it's um, it can seem very overwhelming and um, isolating you know when you consider how few of us there are and what really needs to be done. So you know, first of all, I just want to say just ha just chatting and talking with uh, comrades around the world is is absolutely fantastic and um, you know really uh, raises my spirits. I think uh, broadly speaking, we're all we all have uh, a broadly a common understanding of what, what, what we're facing. I think the key is, you know, what are we going to do? And whilst I don't think there are any direct historical analogies to what we're facing, if we understand what, what it is, it, you know, is some sort of fascism, then I think we can look back on kind of Trotsky's call for the anti-fascist United Front. And, um, that that he called on the you know the social democrats the communists but also the um the catholic center party as well which is not wasn't a socialist party uh but it was a workers party right of sorts it had a proletarian base and i think like adam said when you go to these um anti lockdown events and marches the people who you meet they're just ordinary people concerned citizens a lot of them are working class um Yes, you might find people who are so-called conspiracy theorists or, you know, an actual anti-vaxxers. But for the most part, they're just ordinary people, a lot of parents, you know, with young children. Um, so the key thing is just to build build your networks where you are locally, uh, as well as 
I guess on a larger scale internationally, like what what we're doing now um, over the internet. But the, the the key thing is building up your network in your community, and um, yeah, I guess being prepared. You know, so in the US, your your best allies are going to be the uh, the constitutionalists. You know, the patriots. You know. Um, Hey, at least they've got guns, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, in the UK, um, I don't know. I'm not quite sure what's going to happen. I think we have quite a compliant population. I think it stems stems back to World War II and the, the national government we had. And this, this whole stiff upper lip British kind of thing that we've got, it's uh, it's not great. But, that you know, it sometimes it feels like it's all lost and then something happens and yeah, the mighty will fall at some point, you know, we just don't know when exactly, but but we can make it happen, you know. Thanks, David. Um, what do you think, Kenny? Yeah, I mean, for me at least, yeah, you know, obviously we have to organize and um but for what reason is 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 kind of the important thing to me. Um I think one an important task for me is to explain or explain my vision of what fascism is because we have a very one-dimensional understanding of it and we're facing a multi-dimensional world, right? Like a, a, a prison that is coming our way. And, you know, um, ultimately I am about democracy. And so if people prefer to stay connected to this matrix that is getting invented, you know, if the, if I don't show them something better, if if, you know, if I myself don't, you know, um, live a, a life, you know, within these constraints, that's better than that matrix life, then uh, why would people follow me? You know, why would people want to listen to me? So it, to me, it's both, yes, organizing, but also leading a life of, you know, uh, rejecting this, this world and showing why that is not healthy, why that is a prison, why that is not freedom. Um, that to me is really important, um, you know, to be able to reach anybody um, and, you know, whether it be right wing or progressive. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it, it, for me, it's, it's, it, and it also has to be personal, right? Like if you're, ha you're in this fight because you have something at stake, you know, your own freedom. And so if, again, no one's going to fight because, uh, or at least not for a long term, if it's for someone else, you know, you have to fight for yourself first in common association, you know, with other people, because safety is in numbers ultimately. That's why I'm a socialist. Thanks, Kenny. Um, you can you can go if you need to. Yeah, I do. Uh, so nice to meet you all. Uh, thank you. Hopefully, we can do this again. Uh, and uh, yeah, thank you. Thanks, Kenny. Um, Tom. Uh, yeah. So I agree with a lot of. What is said, especially uh, what Kenny said, although I think I view it almost from a different perspective, I think a lot of us overestimate uh, the right-wing content or orientation of the lockdown movement, uh, both immediately and internationally. Um, in Germany in particular, I was struck by, um, you know, it's still insisted, and, and much of the organized left-wing parties, which again are small, um, insist that, um, these are right-wing movements, but a survey took in, taken at German protests early in the year found that 
something like 20% were Green Party voters, 17% were left party voters, which is a radical left-wing party, more radical than left-wing parliamentary parties in the UK or America, and only 14% were AFD voters, this, this far-right party, and yet the media continue to insist. Like um, David said, uh, when you go to these rallies and you speak with people, you don't find a far-right. There's a lot of people with confused ideas, with a lot of the you know, our culture is steeped with anti-communism. It's steeped with uh, fascist conceptions of history that a lot of people have to shake off. But their basic orientation is to these fundamental principles to democracy. I mean, this is core, I think, of the lockdown movement. Um, and like Lenin said, right, uh, the maximal call for democracy translates into the call for socialism. They're, they're, they're in practice, they become the same thing. Um, and you know, in the German media, we often hear that the, uh, the, these groups are radicalizing. And even now the, the Querdenker anti-lockdown movement is under surveillance. Uh, it's been reported by the um, Constitutional Protection Agency in Germany. They are radicalizing when you go to these protests and that is people fundamentally questioning capitalist governments and even the capitalist system um, at, at these. Um, but we get this perception and just to give a personal anecdote at the Mayday rally in Berlin. Myself and a comrade who is an anarchist from Hamburg, uh, a picture was taken of, of us and posted on Twitter by some account that said, oh, you think that the free left are socialists? Look, these are two well-known Nazis from Halle an der Saale, uh, this city in Germany. Uh, this complete fabrication that then, you know, we got it down fairly quickly, but already feeds into this um, this spectacle that's constantly churning out this fabrication about a reality. And wherein, whenever we take the kangaroo court social media, which can defame anyone and can construct these impressions and what people are held guilty of, you know, NATO is an extremist right-wing organization. The Democratic Party is an extremist right-wing organization. Organizing with them isn't some fundamental flaw that compromises your socialist credentials. As, as long as we accept this framing, we are, we're stuck, and that's not even factoring in that the, if we can see massive protests in major European capitals basically hidden by the media, right? We have very little idea, I think, still of the nature of the resistance that's going around, around the globe. Um, I think we underestimate that the, the resistance that's already probably taking place and is there. Um, so we just have to, to own this, right? Uh, that, of course, this is the, the, the clear left-wing position. And we can be, for sentimental reasons, oriented towards the parties of the left, which have been so insignificant already for so long and have failed to reach the masses. But it's the, the class struggle that produces the Marxist, not the Marxist that will produce the class struggle. And we have to engage directly uh, and, and confront it and get out of the spectacle onto the street and into our workplaces and not be let it dictate our perception of reality. That's what I would say. Thanks, Tom. Um, uh, I guess I'll go and then the one person who doesn't belong here who's not a socialist, Eduardo, is going to finish up. We let you stay, Eduardo, because. Um, anyway. Otherwise, I kick everyone off my show. <laughs> Um, so I guess I'll start with, uh, so these, there are these terms, um, Marxism, Stalinism, Trotskyism, Leninism, Maoism, anarchism, 
And I think when, when leftists hear those, some of those terms made you have good associations and some of those terms, you suddenly had negative things, all right? But I think all of them share something in common at this moment, failure. They all share in common the fact that by and large, all of us, and I, I'm not, you hope you understand what I mean, all of us in, who are in this part of this tradition, our tradition has failed to understand this moment. And we have, and so that means we have to have some humility and some sense of like, wait, what the hell just, what's going on with our politics that, that led to this? I don't have an answer to that, but I do think we need, we need to lead that investigation to figure that out. Um, and that has led me, I, I think some of us who do are talking about associating with f factors outside the progressive liberal wings. I don't think we're necessarily talking far right, but we are talking libertarian. We are talking, uh, you know, people who uh, are pro or pro-life, right? Uh, in terms of anti-abortions, it can mean it can mean somebody who's anti-union. It could mean somebody who uh, is not who's who's concerned about immigrants coming across the border rather than welcoming, as I am. And and so the, I do think that it's going to require that we're going to organize with those with those people. And I am jealous of, and then let me say something about organizing. I am jealous of Australia and Germany and uh, Britain that we don't have these massive demonstrations of 100,000 or 70,000 for this, for this stuff. But I also think we could get fooled by those demonstrations because I, I still believe that we, are, that we on the left or we who are organizing uh, consciously for socialism to, again, we're not organizing against COVID to stop, to stop lockdown. We're organizing against COVID to stop lockdown and establish socialism. Like that's the goal. And so we who are conscious of that are very small and very like a, a, a minority of minority of minority. So I think when we talk about organizing, we are talking about people whose names we know. Like we know their names. We, we might know what their favorite movies are. We might know like what their habits are because we're close to them. So I think we have to have that consciousness of the, of the kind of organizing we're doing. It's, it's very intimate right now. It's not about even parties per se. It's about people we know that we're doing something with. And, and we have to understand, even though the scale of the attack is massive, like a huge wave, we have to understand we are just building the beginnings of, of networks. That's my, my sense. But our role within that is how is how I'm organizing with these three people or four people connected right now to the establishment of socialism? Like we have to be able to answer that question. And if we can't, then we should be trying to answer like, how is the work that I'm doing with the Comité or with my one or two colleagues that I can find? How is that work connected to the immediate establishment of socialism? Because it's not, but I have to know that because if I don't, they, they don't know that. So who's fighting for socialism then? Who's trying to connect what we're doing today to the goal of workers' power and really the only thing that can establish democracy, which is socialist revolution? Um, so those are the things that I would, I would summarize with. And again, thank you very much, everyone, for being here. Well, I'm not necessarily a socialist. Ooh, <laughs> the only one. Get out of here. <laughs> but I'm Mexican. <laughs> and um, and in Mexico, we it's a different story from the USA and from most uh, northern so-called first world countries. No? And, and Mexican people have a long struggle. Um, and it's a mixed bag of conservatives and liberal and progressive politics in Mexico. And we have more parties like in Britain um, when people run um, for presidential candidates. And, um, and I think for me, just being raised as a Jehovah's Witness, 
I'm still licking my wounds from, from that time. And I'm licking my wounds even today with all of my progressive leftist liberal friends here in San Francisco. And I'm appalled and I'm disheartened and I'm still, um, I'm still, yeah, licking, like I said, licking my wounds. I, 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 it's really, it's been a real heartbreak, this breakup between the left liberal politics of San Francisco that I have uh, jumped into right after my Jehovah's Witness upbringing. And so I, I have found that my most important allies in the face of this, it seems to me in this whole pandemia has not been progressive liberal San Francisco who follows all of the identity politics, but more so este, finding it with the non-educated class. It's, it's the people that I've really come to see as the people who don't buy into this. And I, I see myself allying myself with them and if I if we just see the trend, even with like the Trump supporters, not necessarily that I'm, you know, I, I'm not a Trump voter or Trump supporter myself, but just even the um, the populist movement that arose here in, in U.S. in the USA by people. I mean, a lot of people voted for him. I just don't see how we could ignore that population in to to work with because they are part of the working class, and. Uh, and so I, I do think that it's not the educated class that is going to liberate us. I don't think I, I've seen how they are now complicit in, in acting as state police, as a snitch, as they are now, um, as we have seen with Andy, going out and organizing with families. And they have acted as, a, I've told Andy, we were just, just discussing last weekend, they have become more of like the police state. And just like the police is part of, I, I would say, workers. They are workers as well, but they are complicit in taking care and defending the ruling class. I think that a lot of professionals in the educated class are becoming this way today. So it's unfortunate. I I love a lot of my leftist friends, but they have bought into this. And so I do think that we have to organize with people, and that's going to mean organizing with different people from different walks of life. And, I, and I'm very, um, I, I was also going to mention at one point the Welsh miners and the LGBT folk also that in Britain, because that was my, um, I learned about that as well, that I do think that we're going to, it's going to come to some organizing movement and we're going to have to sort out our differences in that movement to be able to, este, uh, to deal with uh, the homophobia, the sexism, all of the racism, everything but it's not in this identity politics. I have seen white friends of mine follow identity politics, suddenly shove me to the side and say, you're not the brown voice I need because you are not, according to my agenda, you're not actually, you're not doing what, you're not stating and you're not saying what I need for my political agenda. And these are white political leftists that I consider to be friends who are now pushing me to the side. The identity politics framework mm -hmm. isn't working um, and it's it's just further going to cause more racism I realize because it's going to be using us as props as I think right now as Kenny and I the only person of color here in, on this panel and so I, I do think that I'm I'm seeing true colors come out during this time and I'm a recovering liberal a recovering leftist and I should have learned better having had been Jehovah's Witness. And it's cringy now looking back at a lot of what's left episodes that I think uh, AJ would know but uh, about. 
but you know, it, it is it is a learning experience, and it, it, it's it's going to be um, more organizing um, that we're going to have to do together to be able to deal with the greater forces to come. No, it, it is what uh, Tom did say. It's like the whole 9/11 blanket of the cloud that is now has is the uh, encompassed, embraced, or, or um, over this entire country, where everyone's just sort of this in sleepy fog of uh, non-resistance and taking it in. No, Eduardo, I'll actually say that having I was just actually telling somebody about this the other day. Like it has been fascinating, and I've learned so much actually from listening to you and actually watching like through the watching the podcast and through knowing you and talking to you, like actually seeing your ideas change, it can be very easy for me to think like I already had some sort of preset ideas and they just came preformed because I'm a Marxist. And so whatever, but <laughs> which obviously isn't true as I've described my own journey through thinking about what's going on today, but listening to you and being able to see very clearly, like how you're, where you, where your ideas have changed, things you've held on to, things you've shifted on, um, I've I've learned a lot from that from watching this podcast. So I just want to say thank you. Gracias. Being willing to do that publicly, you know what I'm saying? Like it's very cringy watching it from the very start, though. <laughs> Anyhow, I uh, thank you, AJ. Este, so I think this is a good place to wrap up. Thank you very much, everyone, for being here. Adam, Adam, este, David, Tom, everyone, it has been really encouraging having you all here. AJ, thank you always for showing up. It really is something to have everyone here because it is an isolating political, a politically isolated time, isolating time at this time, no? And um, we'll see how this YouTube video fares in the YouTube uh, world. If it will be censored or if it will be taken down, then we we'll <laughs> hope that it'll be on the Odyssey or Libri or any other, uh, or shoot for people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the good thing is, is we won't know which one of you said the thing that was the magic thing that got our channel eliminated. So, you know, we can, we can yeah. just say, I'm going to blame it on Tom because I was been yeah. trying to marginalize him the whole time. So if it goes I down, think it's right here. Of, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Fences. <laughs> you are asking for it, getting this many of us together. Yeah, I, I know, I know. So-called virus. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Who said that constantly? It was, was one of. It kept, someone kept saying so-called. I thought that's I'm, going to get a shutdown. <laughs> I'm gonna edit so-called out. You're gonna notice. I'm gonna edit so-called. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or oh, if it exists. <laughs> That's right. It was. Okay. It, <laughs> oh my God, I was like, okay, here. I mean, it was. Uh... <laughs> All right. Um, so I guess if we can just do this outro together and then after that, we'll say goodbye. Is that all right, everyone? Yeah. yeah? What's Left is a weekly political podcast slash channel challenging the mainstream left. We post information about our topics and our guests on the episode notes wherever you found this episode or on our blog at what dash s dash left dot webnode.com and you can find past episodes to this podcast slash channel there and connect with us i remind folks if you like anything you have heard here please share your favorite episode uh rate review subscribe turn on your notifications jot down our information this channel is in jeopardy on a podcast uh spotify itunes podcast stitcher google play on channels bitshoot libri lbry uh odyssey ody 
S-E-E or YouTube for now. Oh, and, and, and Telegram. Now we are on Telegram, yes? And if you would like to give us feedback about something you've heard or suggest something for us to cover, contact us through our blog. I'm Eduardo Barca with co-host, teacher, and socialist Andy Lipson. And uh, Tom, David, Adam, AJ, thank you very much for being on, with us and Kenny Cepeda as well. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right. <clears throat> oh, it looks like the Brady Bunch almost. <laughs> <laughs> right. We need a few more female body people in here. Uh, I can see that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right. that, that might help you. <laughs> All right, here we go. <laughs>